It's March 20th, 2022, and this is special coverage of the war in Ukraine, and today's episode is a little different. If you're on the internet, you may have noticed a theme popping up regularly in regards to the war in Ukraine. There are many variants, but the key talking point for the West is regular Russians are to blame for the war in Ukraine as much as Putin and Lavrov. I understand that sentiment. I really do. How does a nation of 140 million tolerate the Kremlin's brutal whims? And why do Russians keep voting for Putin? Why don't they overthrow him? Why don't they believe sources outside of Russia that Ukrainians are being slaughtered? And this frustration is easy to understand. However, the answer may not be so easy to digest. We've covered before the prevalence of Russian propaganda in the West, how it's meant to sow confusion and distrust, how it distorts, distracts, dismays, and dismisses the truth. The same is true of propaganda in Russia itself. The overwhelming majority of news outlets are funded or directed by the Kremlin. It's state-run television, state narratives. And for most Russians, this narrative is the absolute truth. They simply don't believe that Russia could be killing civilians. It's impossible. Claims otherwise are the product of Western propaganda. So for this episode, we turn to Sofia Shirogorova, a Russian activist historian, to provide us a comprehensive history of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. Specifically, we asked her to tell us the story of Putin and Ukraine. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, it's estimated that over 200,000 Russians have left Russia. For many, where we are now is the inevitable conclusion for Russia. Consolidation of power, control of media, authoritarianism. Admittedly, I was skeptical of hosting a Russian historian. Yeah, I'm also a, a Russian oppositioner. <laughs> so, you know, my point of view, it's a point of view of Russian opposition. But I suppose that's the right point of view now. <laughs> but I think we're in good hands. I wanted to start with the NATO question. Does Russia really see NATO as a threat? But first, we have to go back to the early 90s. We look at Russia in its infancy when Boris Yeltsin was president. In the Baltimore Sun on Sunday, December 21st, 1991, quote, In yet another sign that the disintegration of the Soviet Union was turning global politics upside down, the Russian president, Boris N. Yeltsin, wrote to NATO yesterday asking it to consider allowing Russia to become a member sometime in the future. End quote. And in that letter to NATO, Yeltsin wrote, quote, This will contribute to creating a climate of mutual understanding and trust, strengthening stability and cooperation on the European continent. We consider these relations to be very serious and wish to develop this dialogue in each and every direction, both on the political and military levels. Today we are raising a question of Russia's membership in NATO, however regarding it as a long-term political aim. End quote. So I asked Sophia, did Yeltsin really expect Russia to become a NATO member? I think he 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 knew that, and he he didn't want to join NATO. You know, like uh, Yeltsin didn't want that, and uh, Putin also. It's some kind of a part of their, you know, like identity, partly based uh, on the idea that Russia is uh, one uh, amongst uh, you know great powers. And how could great power join this uh, NATO alliance? It's uh, some kind of uh, humiliation to the great power. All this stuff. Yeah. So, and during, during uh, the whole Russian history and Soviet history, uh, that was, as far as I know, the one episode when Soviet Union asked for membership in NATO. And that was uh, soon after the death of Stalin 
in uh, 54, like 1954. Yeah, Molotov then asked to join NATO, and that was like <laughs> Molotov. Are you okay? Uh, are you crazy? <laughs> no one in Soviet Union and no one in Russia really wants to join NATO for real. You know, not like some bullshit talking not like some <laughs> abstract uh, talking, but for real. So at the fall of the Soviet Union, Yeltsin made his bid for NATO membership. However disingenuous it may have been, it at least signaled to the world that Russia was committed to being a peaceful member of the global order. The U.S. and Russia officially declared in 1992, quote, Russia and the United States do not regard each other as potential adversaries, end quote. The Soviet Union had fallen in 1991. Gorbachev's perestroika movement, 1985 to 1991, that was the attempt to shift the Soviet economy to a more Western position, investment, and trade accompanied the move to make the Soviet Union more democratic as well. When the Soviet Union fell in 1991, the world believed, and maybe it was naive, that Russia was committed to democracy and free trade. But then we got Putin. I asked Sofia how we got here. Maybe this is important to say that Yeltsin, uh, first president of the Russian Federation, he named Putin as his successor. Like, you know, like this person is my guy, you should elect them and stuff like that. Okay, that's also, I, uh, I understand that this uh, doesn't sound like, you know, the pure democracy, <laughs> but that's um, how things uh, went those days. This is also some rumors that people from Yeltsin family, his brother and her, her husband, uh, they influenced uh, chose of Putin. Like there were also some financial connections, and uh, oligarchs they uh, yeah they promoted Putin in a sense. He had some positions, some important uh, even key positions. Uh, he was the head of. Um, Apparat Presidenta, a uh, kind of a presidential chancellery. I don't know the right term. And also he was uh, in 90s uh, ahead of uh, FSB, um, this secret service. He, he was a uh, right, right hand Sapchak. Sapchak was a uh, counselor, chancellor of St. Petersburg, um, the second important city in Russia. So, no, Putin was a prominent person, prominent politician. Uh, he was not a bright one. Uh, he was not, you know, like a great speaker, but he, he got an influence and he, he got this financial support. He got this support from oligarchs and stuff like that. He even, you know, he even um, created his own manner, like manner which spirit uh, likable to people. You know, this uh, uber-masculine, uh, toxic masculine, of course, <laughs> appearance. Like this is uh, machite sartire uh, to mm. kill people in toilet room. I don't know. It, it's very toxic, masculine, uh, bully way to say things in Russian. <laughs> uh, so it's like, uh, you know, uh, in Russia, we've got a term gopnik. Because it's, you know, this Gopnik culture is very toxic masculine. Uh, they like uh, detest women. Uh, they detest all this women stuff. Uh, like he, once he said that he, uh, he hasn't bad days like women. <laughs> He's not a girl, so he, he has not bad days. 
well, you know, like women with these bad days when they're emotional and, and stuff like that. This is, you know, like a pure toxic masculinity and uh, Putin is a sense, uh, an icon of this toxic masculinity. Uh, that is important yeah. uh, because it explains a lot, a lot in, in, in his speeches, in his movements, in his manner of speaking. Putin has not communicated uh, directly with Zelensky because of this toxic masculinity. Because from his point of view, Zelensky is, you know, like uh, some clown from, from the TV show. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, unmasculine to speak directly with this uh, clown. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's difficult to explain, but that's important. Backed by Yeltsin and Russian oligarchs, Putin, the prominent Russian figure, became Russia's president in 2000. It became apparent in his first term that this was not a move towards a freer, more democratic Russia. He was elected and, uh, okay, so probably first, first steps were attacking the free press, free media, oh, because, you know, it's uh, some kind of a basic rule for every dictator, <laughs> suppress uh, the freedom of media. Uh, so first of all, uh, it was uh, TV channels, because uh, those days people in Russia, they, uh, and even now, the eldest generation, they watch TV a lot. And TV is their, probably their one channel of, of the information. So first of all, Putin, you know, like purify the television, uh, all of oppositioners were fired, uh, all of oppositional channels were closed. Uh, that was important episode when uh, a channel NTV was, you know, like taken from, from people who own this channel and uh, just given to the state. Like, <laughs> uh, uh, that is normal thing in Russia. NTV was most the most prominent one, like the most popular. And uh, there were a lot of smaller channels and they also were taken from their owners and uh, made a kind of a state property. And when the channel is uh, in a state property, of course, the channel <laughs> picks what the government wants from, from it. There were a lot of, you know, some like uh, conspiracy theories, mm, you know, those first years of uh, Putin's rule, uh, that was a war, a war in Chechnya. You know, this war in Chechnya for Putin was a purpose, not a purpose, but как бы оправдание, а, justification, sorry, justification to bring some measures, some strict measures, like, you know, this uh, war on terrorism. Uh, you can do everything uh, justifying it with war on terror. Uh, in USA, it's also like <laughs> the same thing. So you, 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 you can imagine that. Uh, but in Russia, in Putin's Russia, it was these measures, they were more strictly. So probably this first years is, is okay, but then, then it became more interesting. Like, you know, this, um, during these first years, moves that Putin made, they were not clear. Like uh, very few of people understood those days the direction of his strategy, you know, like uh, even people who are oppositioners now, they thought that Putin was a kind of a democratic leader. Yeah, a, bit of, a, a little bit bully, a little bit strict, he will keep democracy. 
I know a lot of people uh, who are nowadays, uh, you know, just like hating themselves for that position, like Gleb Pavlovsky, например, uh, Anna uh, probably have heard of him. Uh, he, he was on Putin's side those days, and nowadays he's a oppositioner. Here, our interpreter steps in. We have a gubernators, and he uh, denied. Uh, so, and gubernators was uh, chosen by people. For example, we have several parts of Russia, and usually people who live in, in one part of Russia, they still, uh, elected uh, the gubernator who will uh, on this position. But then he denied this process, and uh, he started to select the gubernators by himself. So it, it was a huge, uh, huge step to the autocracy because yeah, yeah, yeah. autocracy, people, yeah. autocracy. Yeah, pre- because previously people can uh, sele- uh, elect someone who uh, can be uh, op- a little more opposite to the government or uh, less pro-government. But after this step, he started to choose and he also can uh, uh, like deny the uh, this uh, man from this position. So everyone right now became pro-government gubernators. Putin, uh, in in the first years of his uh, rule, he just you know like he reconstructed the political system uh, of Russia uh, because you know in nineties the local democracy, the local self-government works worked in a sense. But during uh, the first years of Putin's rule, everything, this local election, local freedom of press and stuff like that, uh, it was slowly, but, you know, like, <laughs> slowly but firmly, the Putin won in the year 2000 with 54% of the vote. In addition to consolidating media and realigning the government, Putin's first two terms were marked by conflict and scandal. The rumors about corruption with Yeltsin and Putin referenced by Sofia is the Mabetex bribery case. Mabetex is a global engineering and construction company. It was hired for several huge renovation projects in Russia. Yeltsin's family and Putin were subjects of a criminal bribery case. Upon Putin's election, the case was dropped. Putin won his second term in 2004 with 71% of the vote. Over those eight years, Russian opposition was slowly overwhelmed, as Sofia says. In a previous episode, you know, we reported that Anna Politkovskaya, a journalist investigating Russian corruption in the military, had been poisoned in 2006 and then later shot and killed at her apartment in 2008. They found the five men responsible for the shooting, but never figured out who paid them. And the dissenters' march, led by chess champion Garry Kasparov, was an opposition rally that was met with fierce police force. Uh, The Chechen War, the Kursk submarine disaster, the Moscow theater hostage crisis, the Beslan school hostage crisis. None of these things were handled very well by Putin. Now, that didn't really matter, because after two terms, Putin's time should have been up. In uh, 2008, there was a problem. According to Russian constitution, you can be a president only terms. But what is an authoritarian to do when the Constitution stands in his way of permanent power? Well, you can trust that there's always a plan. In Russian, the term comes from chess, rokirovka, or castling. Sofia explains. What was the plan? It was quite simple. Putin has uh, a kind of uh, also right hand, 
this right hand was uh, his prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev. And uh, as far as we understand now, Dmitry Medvedev was completely Putin's yes man. Putin created a system uh, in which Medvedev could not, could not afford himself to be independent. Uh, because his money, his uh, property, status, all of that dependent on Putin's will. <laughs> okay. And Medvedev is a very rich person. Uh, he's got a lot of money. He's got few yachts. He's got uh, manners in Crimea and stuff like that. And even I, I've heard today probably, yeah, I've heard that in Finland, uh, local police now this day try to arrest Medvedev's yacht. Very, very expensive, like some very, you know, fashionable. <laughs> so it was a kind of a, a Rakirovka. I, I don't know the uh, English uh, analog. That's a term from Shachmat. Chess. Ah, Casting. The king. Yeah, king yeah, of the yeah, castle. Yeah. Uh, it was named uh, Rakirovka those days. Uh, so uh, Medvedev uh, became a president and Putin became his prime minister. <laughs> they changed position, exchanged. <laughs> but everyone really in Russia and everyone, as far as I know, uh, in the outside understood that Medvedev just was a Putin's person. He was like keeping, keeping a place for Putin. And of course, this result, I should also mention that during these elections 2008, all persons who, who could challenge Medvedev, uh, they were denied access to these elections. Again, our interpreter adds context. It was growing in our character uh, to not put, uh, to not think about politics. So Russia mm -hmm. in their uh, history never had this habit to vote for something or to choose something. So, I mean, it never was in Russia because we have a, a king, like Tsar, then we have yeah. a, a party, uh, uh, like Lenin, Stalin, and so on. But we, we don't have this mindset to vote, to choose, to be uh, active in po political way. You know, like like we have uh, one year of democracy in 1917. <laughs> yeah. Unique year in Russian history when <laughs> there were free elections. Mindset is more like we have some small group uh, of very uh, very smart people who can care about all of you. But you have to care about your small life. We have a lot of jokes about people who talk about politics. Uh, we call it couch politicians who are sitting on a couch and discuss the uh, politics. So uh, to uh, discussion about politics, it's um, more reason to laugh about uh, the people than to really have this conversation. Because uh, we, for, for example, I, I would talk for myself. I've never lived with this feeling that I can um, make real impact there. Yeah, that's that. That is a kind of a patrimonial pattern in 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 uh, in Russia. So it's like okay, you you have not this tradition of democracy. You have not this tradition of uh, you know making some political decisions, and people just they just don't know how how to do it, how to use it, how to practice uh, it. Two zero zero eight. 
that was another problem, uh, also very important in uh, in this era, the economy in Russia. Mm. So the uh, economy was developed and growing well, very well, and people becomes more wealthy. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. for this reason, their loyalty to to the government to the yeah, yeah. Uh, also growing because they start to feel that yes, uh, like several years ago, uh, uh, I'm not not able to allow me a, to buy a car, but now I can buy a car. So uh, we moving in the right direction. The situation was due to high uh, oil prices. Yeah, because uh, oil prices were very high. Yes, and people became richer and richer. And uh, that was probably the first period of uh, richness in Russian history. Because in the 90s and 80s and 70s, people were really poor. Uh, and in, uh, you know, like zeros, people became a little bit more wealthy. So that was a kind of a <laughs> uh, ground for their loyalty. I, I remember even this uh, talkings about, okay, maybe Putin is not so so nice person, such a nice person, but <laughs> we are living better. That is important. Then 2011 happened. Why this year was important? Because uh, we had elections, uh, parliamental elections. Uh, it's called Duma. So we we had this Duma elections, and these Duma elections were completely stolen or falsified. Uh, and uh, these falsifications they were obvious. Like uh, there were a lot of photos, videos, uh, interviews uh, about these falsifications. Just imagine that. Just imagine we've got a graphic a diagram in prime time uh, in governmental television. Uh, where they show the results of the election, you know, like these uh, results, they were mm, split into mm, percents. Yeah, and if you sum all of the percents, you've got not 100% as you should, but like 146%. <laughs> yes, in state television, yeah, it's a kind of a meme till nowadays in Russia, 146%. These falsifications were not only obvious, uh, they were just thrown into our faces. Like, we can steal everything. We can steal your voices. We can do it, you know, in the bright light, daylight, and no one can stop. Uh, and that was, you know, the starting point for the Russian opposition. That were the first massive protests in in contemporary Russian history. I want to pause for a moment. Keep in mind that Russia as an independent nation has only existed for two decades at this point. From 2011 to 2013, the Snow Revolution, the series of protests prompted by fraudulent elections, that was a series of massive protests against United Russia. That's Putin's political party. And I remember these protests well. My daughter, 10 years old, was born in 2011. We're not talking about ancient history. Putin's government wasn't ready for protests and they weren't ready for opposition. Sofia describes these protests. She was there. 100,000 of people joined this protest and we've got a lot of meetings this winter because uh, elections took place in December, so that was winter. Uh, and I remember, you know, quite uh, quite well. Uh, that was very cold winter and <laughs> like minus 20 degrees, really quite cold. 
<laughs> and you are staying during this meeting, during this protest, <laughs> and people are trying to speak something <laughs> with the microphone. Yeah, and everything is frozen. Okay, I took part. That was, you know, the, the beginning of my political life. Okay, I was very young. Uh, I was 17 or something like that. Uh, and I was also outraged because, <laughs> oh, because I was outraged. There should be, should be said some, you know, like preview, preview things. Uh, because um, I remember this, uh, as I said, quite well. And I remember that uh, first, firstly, yeah, these protests against falsifications, uh, they were very popular. And uh, even uh, some politicians, even some uh, high-ranking politicians, uh, they also um, said something supporting this protest, like, yeah, there were some falsifications, that is not good, probably we should do something, and stuff like that. So it was a kind of a popular support. And then government really, really uh, was very afraid. They, they were caught completely unprepared. They don't have anything to suppress this protest. Uh, they don't have, um, you know, like properly riot police. Uh, they don't have, you know, like laws to punish oppositioners. They don't have, any, they didn't have anything. And that was, uh, that's why they were so afraid. And that's why they decided to take the second route. If you don't have uh, measures, if you don't have, you know, like brute force, you should use propaganda. And uh, it was a man in Putin's, uh, like, inner circle. Uh, his name is Vyacheslav Surkov. He was a kind of uh, writer, politician, uh, politechnologue. It's like, you know, like Dominic Cunnings during Brexit, uh, Brexit campaign. Uh, Surkov was a person like that, you know. Sarkov is very pro-governmental. Uh, he's a kind of a apologist of the Russian authoritarianism. He's completely nuts. <laughs> that should be said in the first place. <laughs> yes, it's like he's crazy. Uh, so, and he always uh, writes these articles about Russian uh, needs, uh, they need Tsar, and uh, Russia should be monarchy. And Russia should be an empire, and we should, you know, like uh, <laughs> conquer all our neighbors. Sarkov uh, is a kind of a gifted man, uh, you know, in evil way, in evil manner, but he is a gifted man. And he created completely a heavy campaign to blacken the opposition, you know, to blacken the protest, to demoralize the opposition. Mm, his most important idea was that opposition is. Uh, working on the West. Yes, and opposition are paying from the West and by the West and organizing by the West. And so West are trying to destroy Russia from the inside. This, you know, so-called fifth column. You know, the storm, of course, yeah? Uh, so the storm, fifth column, became really widespread and commonly used by the state propaganda. And also a very important point in, in this zero four. Uh, Orange Revolution happened in Ukraine. And uh, also, it was a huge message that do you want the same like in Ukraine? So a lot of people would die if you will uh, continue to, to support uh, the opposition. So And also, the second message was, does your opposition know how to rule the government, uh, the, the country? 
Like the, these guys don't know how to rule it. They they are voting for nothing. They just want to destroy it, what what is happening right now. But they don't have their own program. They don't know how to rule the country. They don't know how to uh, make any reforms. So all Russia would would uh, swim in the blood, but we will not build anything uh, new and uh, good. We can state that uh, that was a huge propaganda campaign in state-owned media, in the TV channels, and the citizens of Russia. (laughs) They were shown from morning till till night how bad a position is, uh, how how we got money from the USA government, from your (laughs) state department, (laughs) stuff like that. Uh, sorry, I, I didn't get any money from your <laughs> department, and I am uh, really sorry for that. <laughs> Probably that was the way to. <laughs> so we have we have the exact same thing in the United States. Um, wow, you know, America, has, I think, shifted towards that sort of authoritarianism, and uh, everybody who is against that is, you know. A socialist or a communist, and we receive money from um, George Soros. Uh, he has personally funded the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, wow! So all of the uh, Hollywood elite, right? They uh-huh. are all control of it. We had that's the exact same thing. They they think we're idiots or children or naive or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just totally invalid. That's a pity, you know, <laughs> probably. <laughs> okay. To, to strengthen this propaganda campaign, they started to organize meetings uh, supporting the government, supporting Putin, Medvedev, their policy and stuff like that. Uh, we called uh, these meetings Putinks <laughs> because it's like you've got meeting or Putink. <laughs> meeting is <laughs> when opposition gather and Putin is when okay some with this uh, massive propaganda campaign with this Putinks and stuff like that uh, they suppress protest for uh, for a while and in uh, 2012 in in spring there was a kind of a first blood on 6 of May a kind of a march, a protest march uh, in the center of Moscow. Police attacked this march. Yes, and people tried to protect themselves. It was a kind of, uh, okay, fighting. Uh, so it's a kind of a bloodshed. Yeah, uh, not, not, a, not a bloodshed in a, okay, in a proper sense. But uh, after that, uh, a lot of people were arrested and uh, they were put in prison. Uh, they were detained uh, because they were accused in attacking the police. Uh, and they served in prison three, four, five years. That was the first, you know, like um, criminal case against the position. Yeah, yeah. They, they were trying to mobilize mass support to, to create different organizations. They fund some, you know, like parties, rallies, and stuff like that. But you can imagine, uh, they, they were really, you know, like also unpolitical or also very, uh, they regarded all of this, you know, rallies like fun. 
people from this movement are very cynical about uh, their actions and about their motivation. And also, also, it is important to think about 2012. It's a kind of a first religious repression, because now we have, as far as you know, uh, very strong ties between government and between uh, Russian Orthodox Church. <laughs> it sounds also crazy, but yes, we have. And that began with the repression. It also was a very prominent case, this feminist organization Pussy Riots. In tw uh, 2012, uh, Pussy Riots, uh, they came to the uh, cathedral Christ of the Savior. Yeah, Christ the Savior. Yeah. And then uh, they okay, performed there a kind of a punk in the uh, punk prayer. They called uh, that punk prayer. And uh, they sang a song Bagaradicu Deva Putina Pragani. Like uh, um, Mother Maria, please put away Putin. Please, yeah, please send away Putin. In, in Russian, that sounds better. You have to believe us. So, this Pasi riots girls, they were arrested and they were detained. So, they spent two years in prison, like for not respecting the church, the feelings of Orthodox Christians, and uh, shit like that. So, it was also, you know, a site. A site of a turn to this more uh, orthodox or more right wing politics, even in culture. And then <laughs> 2012, uh, it also was uh, the end of the um, Medvedev's term. Uh, a big question was those days who would be the next president? And as far as we understand, all of us, due to the Russian constitution, Putin could not be a president because that is prohibited in the constitution. But that was also, you know, kind of a, they created a massive, massive campaign around all of that. Like Putin, he, he speaks, he spoke in front of a, of a rally, you know, like mass rally. And he told uh, that he, he would become a president because people, people <laughs> they want they want that and putin cried and uh, channels tv channels they they showed that picture when putin is crying <laughs> so that really is nuts okay <laughs> so in this sense 2012 was a kind of a turning point uh, with the pressure against the position with this uh, orthodox turn with the putin uh, decided to fuck uh, up uh, the constitution and the law completely and everything like that. After that, some people from this opposition movement, they desolated and they leave Russia. They left Russia. Two of my friends who were, you know, like active oppositioners, they left Russia uh, in this period. Uh, and a lot of other people, they, you know, lost, lost motivation to fight. And they just, you know, hide in their personal lives. <laughs> just a common, common pattern uh, in Russian culture, like <laughs> hide, hide in your small life. Probably I should mention that in 2013, Putin, now again president, uh, made uh, important moves to prevent strengthening of the opposition. Uh, so he created proper riot police. Uh, it's Rosgvardia. 
Nowadays, there are something like half a million of these riot policemen. Half a million, half a million. You can imagine, can you imagine that? They're useless, useless fuckers. I'm sorry, I hate them. Uh, they declared several, okay, several laws against opposition. Like now uh, you can be detained, you can be fined, and, and the fine, you know, is not a small sum, yeah? Like the laws against opposition are were made more, more strict, more severe to, to frighten people. Okay, so we've got riot police, we've got this laws against opposition. Uh, we've got a laws against uh, LGBT, LGBT, sorry, LGBT. It's a kind of, uh, it, call, it, it was called a law against LGBT propaganda. There is LGBT propaganda everywhere, in, in movies, in books, in songs, everywhere. And nowadays, yeah, 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 government and Putin himself struggle against this LGBT propaganda. And uh, when in Russian cinemas, Uh, movies are shown with this LGBT, you know, themes or, or heroes. Sometimes episodes or heroes or even lines are just cut from these movies. Uh, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a movie about Elton John. You remember this movie? It was a nice movie, okay? And they cut off the sex scene from this movie in Russian cinemas because this is propaganda, <laughs> LGBT propaganda. You, you see this scene and you became a guy person, it's obvious. <laughs> The children, they also became guys, gays. Okay, that's also, that's uh, all sounds really crazy, but uh, you should... Uh, <laughs> You should imagine that all of that uh, is, you know, packed in uh, also in propaganda, yeah, and uh, that was sold to people with the idea that these laws would help us to fight the West and uh, to fight Western attempts to, to destroy Russia and Russian culture and Russian traditions and etc., etc., etc. Oof. So Putin in 2013 really stroke back. <laughs> And we, we, should, we, we could say that these protests of 2011-2012 were destroyed. And then in 2014, Maidan happened. How Ukrainians called that? Они называют революцией достоинства. Как это будет по-английски? Вы не помните, Анна? Of dignity. Of dignity. Ukrainians called that, yes, revolution of dignity. Uh, we named it Maidan in Russia, and Ukrainians also called it Maidan. Maidan, as far as I remember, and as far as, okay, that, that is like a common, common thing, frightened Putin, like, totally, totally. He was, you know, it was pure horror for him. Popular revolution in neighbor country. It is important to mention that uh, the president Yanukovych, как сказать, скинули. I just wanted to say that uh, Yanukovych, President Yanukovych, who was overthrown, I remember the term, <laughs> right, during this uh, Maidan, he was a Putin's puppet. So he was like a Putin's man. So it, is, uh, it was a nightmare for Putin. He also was afraid of this protests of 2011. And now he saw like, you know, the worst uh, scenario 
like in what sense this protest uh, protests could evolve final form of every protest is Maidan. <laughs> okay, that was a popular revolution and Yanukovych was overthrown, but then people from Ukrainian parliament, uh, they voted, they voted to overthrow Yanukovych and they voted to set a new elections. Putin seeing this Maidan, he made his own move. And that was, you know, move in, in several directions. Uh, you know, in Russian, we've got a proverb. Seven problems, one answer. That was something like that. He was trying in one move to destroy completely uh, inner opposition, to, uh, to suppress Maidan and freedom movement in Ukraine, and to raise his ratings. Because uh, also should be mentioned that his ratings were, you know, like declining all these years. Because a lot of people were, you know, they, they did not like his, okay, his new laws, yeah, uh, his new authoritarian laws. They did not like that he denied the constitution and stuff like that. So uh, we've got ratings problem, we've got Ukrainian problem, and we've got inner opposition problem. <laughs> what should we do? So Putin, facing declining ratings and a massive opposition movement, turned to the fifth column, Russian propaganda. The propaganda campaign and the introduction of new, more restrictive laws, including the establishment of a riot police force half a million strong, useless, useless fuckers, fines and imprisonment for protesting and anti-LGBT censorship, was all sold to the Russian population as a means to fight the Western assault on Russian culture. The West became the enemy all over again. All the internal problems were not due to Putin's increasing authoritarianism, but by propaganda pushed into Russian society. And while it may seem nonsensical to us, Putin knew exactly how to boost his ratings. Putin, uh, you know, he occupied Crimea, and that was a move to to rise his popularity, uh, because amongst many Russians, especially older Russians, uh, there were a quite strong resentment about uh, Crimea especially. Crimea is Russian territory, it's not Ukrainian territory, Sevastopol is a Russian city, and all of that bullshit. It's a kind of, you know, Weimar syndrome, like Germans in Weimar Germany, they were winning about some, some territories uh, that were taken from them by the Versailles Treaty, if you, if you remember that quite well, uh, Sudetenland, and etc. So it's very alike. And uh, Crimea was a nightmare, but now for, for the opposition. Uh, I also remember that quite well. People were, you know, uh, they were enchanted bewitched, enchanted, yeah, less, something like that. Uh, I, I tried. <laughs> like, it was, it was in one day, a lot of people in Russia started to, to, to adore Putin, to adore his policy. It, uh, it's very like to, to Austrian uh, annexation. You remember uh, Hitler uh, firstly annexed Austria, and then he set up a referendum. And in that referendum, people voted to be a part of great Germany, but we don't know the real, how true was uh, this outcome. 
because people voted under the pressure of of uh, foreign army. <laughs> I was going to say my my understanding was they went to the I guess the the city council building, and um, they called well, what, an emergency meeting. I get they held they brought military police in, and they basically they forced the referendum. It was not like... Yeah, 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 yeah. It was not free. We don't know for real even now uh, who who in Crimea, who among the Crimean citizens were <laughs> against it, who the for it. Okay, that's, that's against uh, Budapest Memorandum. That's against uh, Ukrainian uh, sovereignty. So it's like a completely lawless movement it's uh, real aggression, real annexation of, of uh, Ukrainian territory. Uh, but but uh, it was really popular in Russia. A completely lawless invasion and aggression against Russia's western neighbor bore unto Putin a renewed popularity. His plan actually worked. It played on a deeper sentiment in Russia towards former Soviet territories. Specific to Ukraine, as Sofia said, many Russians didn't believe Crimea was really, truly a part of Ukraine. Russian attitudes toward Ukraine are largely paternal and chauvinist. Russia assumes the role of a big brother, a patronizing and dismissive big brother. Some Russians refer to the Ukrainian language as a toy language. They say their money isn't real money. It explains what comes next in the Donbass region, in Donetsk and Luhansk. The, the most important thing about Crimea is that Putin's rating after that skyrocketed. You can't imagine that, but you should try. I, I fought with my own parents. Like, they, they had not liked Putin before the Crimea, but after Crimea, it was like, oh, Crimea... Russian land, Sevastopol is a Russian city, and you're like, but it's sovereign country. You cannot enter your neighbor's flat and uh, take take TV from this flat. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. It's it's unlawful. It's unjust. But okay, as I think, as historians uh, in Russia, I think uh, it's a kind of a, uh, appearance of this imperial mindset. Everyone in Russia, for you remember in a sense that Russia was an empire one day. Yes, and Ukraine and uh, Belarusia and all these countries was, was a part of this empire. So it's a kind of a sentiment that this is not a proper country. Countries, yeah, there are not a proper countries. And uh, Ukrainians are not a proper nation. But, but among Russian far-right circles, among Russian uh, even not far, but <laughs> right circles, the attitude towards Ukrainians were far more hostile. Yeah, it, it were not only jokes, it were not only slurs, it were not only, you know, jokes about accent, about different uh, words and stuff like that. Yeah, it was also a position that uh, Ukrainians are a kind of a Nazi collaborators. Yes, that they are traitors. And if, you know, like, it is a thing that there are a good Ukrainian and this good Ukrainian, he's funny, he's speaking with this funny accent, and he's loyal to Russia. And there is a bad Ukrainian, and this bad Ukrainian, he wants independence, 
he wants to live his own, uh, you know, life and to to walk his own way. And he's bad. He's not a collaborator. He's traitor and stuff like that. Uh, and among the circles, uh, there were always talks about how we should return Kiev, how we should return Kharkiv, how we should return Odessa and uh, other Ukrainian cities. So it's nowadays we hear we're hearing all, all of that from from the TV channels. Uh, we should say that uh, this attitude toward Ukrainians um, it was not like single idea, but it's more like a specter, yeah, a spectrum in which uh, some are joking and some are telling that Kyiv is a Russian city and uh, Ukrainians are all Nazi collaborators and traitors. Uh, it's like a <laughs> spectrum. Yep. O- of course, uh, we, we try to organize some uh, rally against this occupation of Crimea. I myself took part in these rallies, but okay, that was not so popular. And then Putin uh, and his inner circle decided not only to annex the Crimea, they decided to um, grab some Ukrainian territories. You know, the situation after Maidan in Ukraine itself uh, favored it for, for a bit because um, situation was, you know, like uneasy. Now, that is understandable because uh, that was a kind of a power vacuum in, in, in the Ukraine. Uh, some people were uh, pro-Maidan, some people were against Maidan. So that's, uh, that's okay, that's understandable. That's how the revolution goes usually. Yeah, uh, But... Putin and his inner circle, they tried to explode, uh, to exploit this. And they sent their proxies to Donbass region, Donetsk, Lugansk, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because uh, this region had a huge part, a huge number of, of ethnic Russian population and of um, Russian-speaking population. Because in the Ukraine, these are different groups of people. Uh, you you could be Ukrainian but Russian speaking, yeah, and you could be Russian speaking Russian <laughs> but Ukrainian citizen. That that is important now to to divide, yeah. So this proxy, uh, they've got armor with themselves and they've got experience. There was some prominent person, Igor Strelkov. It is important, yeah. He had this experience in in proxy wars in Yugoslavia, in Chechnya, in etc. 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 in in Africa and stuff like that. There were probably a few thousand of, of these people, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, we don't know how how many, at least at least ten thousand. Yeah. And mm, they've got armor, mm, that is important. So put it simply, they just uh, occupied uh, cities. Donetsk, Lugansk, they occupied state buildings, they just, you know, like, okay, occupied these territories and established their own rule. And the uh, Ukrainian army tried to, kick them out, tried to kick them out, which is understandable, <laughs> because that is some, you know, proxies from, from, from Russia. And the uh, Ukrainian army succeeded in some cities, like Slavyansk or Mariupol, but in some cities, Ukrainian army uh, did not succeed. And it did not succeed because Russian army involved, Russian regular army. It is quite important to understand that in 2014 crisis, Russian army uh, get to help 
Стрелков and his proxies. So it was kind of Russian army rescued his, his attempts. You know, like, of course, uh, Russian opposition was outraged by, by all of that because it's obvious an aggression, it's obvious some strange people are doing some shitty things in neighboring country. But on the other hand, we should understand that also this Donetsk and Lugansk affair, it got massive support from, from many Russian people. So some of them were against, some of them were pro, I myself fought with my parents because they thought that the <laughs> Donetsk and Lugansk is also Russian cities, like everywhere is Russian cities. <laughs> so opposition could not exploit this topic to get massive support. It was impossible. If you even pay attention to what uh, leaders of opposition said those days, uh, you can see how they try to avoid <laughs> Uh, to make some, uh, you know, like statement about this. Like once uh, Alexei Navalny, you know Alexei Navalny, of course, he was those days asked about Crimea. He said that Crimea is not a sandwich. Uh, you not return it. Uh, okay, you could not return it. It's, it's okay. That's fucked up. Completely fucked up idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sandwich, uh, if you <laughs> grab it, you could not return it. I, yeah. That's because Navalny uh, probably was feared to say something against popular mood. You know, like people were so such such an awe about all this grabbing of Ukrainian territories. Ah, yeah, uh, Nemtsov was one among few oppositional uh, leaders who speak loudly against this aggression, against the accession of Crimea, and stuff like that. Nemtsov was, Boris Nemtsov, he was a prominent and influential person uh, since 90s. Uh, he was a governor of Nizhny Novgorod. Nizhny Novgorod is a huge city in, in Russia. So he's like, um, you know, a key person in opposition. He was like a Navalny. Opposition, okay, uh, as I put it, protested a bit, but not as active as probably we should have done that. Uh, and in the 2015th, uh, Nemtsov was killed, was murdered uh, near the Kremlin. Uh, this case uh, was not, Zabela как будет расследовать. Yeah, it, it was not investigated properly. So till now, we don't know for real who, who killed Nemtsov. We know Putin ordered to kill Nemtsov, but uh, no one really is punished for that. Oh, fuck. Fucked up timeline, yeah. Timeline is a bit, uh, a little bit more complicated. Like, opposition tried to to take part in in elections. Navalny tried to be elected as as a city council of Moscow, but uh, voices were stolen as as always. And after that, elections were prohibited, no, not prohibited, but like stopped. Uh, nowadays, we, we don't elect uh, City Council of Moscow. <laughs> uh, no, just for being safe. Okay. Yeah. In 2017, opposition again tried to fight back, <laughs> to push back. And uh, this attempt is uh, connected totally with the person of Alexei Navalny. He was the only one who stand. Uh, Nemtsov was killed. A lot of oppositional leaders, they left Russia. 
so like no one really could be leader of the opposition uh, except Navalny. And he tried to, to gather support with anti, anti-corruptional, you know, platform. Like he fought against corruption, he investigated corruption, you know, very popular YouTube documentaries about corruption. Uh, the most famous one is about Dmitry Medvedev yeah, and about his property. Like 20 million people uh, watched this video on, on the YouTube platform. So it was but, quite popular. But I mm-hmm. also would like to add that um, a lot of discussion was that Navalny is a pro-Kremlin guy who just tried, yes, in, in, my, in my circle, uh, that uh, he's pro-Kremlin guy and that he was supported by Kremlin just to put away attention of, of the people and uh, have a controlled uh, controlled uh, opposition. It's, it's like fake uh, opposition. So you have Navalny, pay him money, he create opposition around him, but you, you control Navalny and it means that you control an opposition. So in, 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 in my... In your circle? Okay. Yeah. Which is total, total, total bullshit, but... I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the truth, right? And uh, It's also paternal, paternal well, position. Like no one really is... Uh, a true oppositioner, so I would do nothing. I would just sit there in my flat and then winning, 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 and winning. Yeah, that, that's how it goes. You know, my wish is to, to ask all of these people uh, after that uh, Navalny was poisoned, <laughs> how, how they feel about themselves. <laughs> what, what are their thoughts about the case? But okay. 2017, uh, there were, again, massive protests uh, of, of opposition. You can say that a lot of young people took part in, in those protests. So, like, Navalny and the opposition became popular among youths and not among elder people, uh, because protest of 2011 was a little bit more protest of people who are in their 30s or 40s. And protest of 2017 is uh, more about people who are in their 20s. But this protest also were unsuccessful because of these strict laws, because of this riot police, people were beaten, a lot of people were detained. So it's like a common picture now. Then next year, 2018, uh, Navalny tried to, to rally for the presidential election. Yes, and he, he was not allowed to take part for some, you know, like made up reason, but it was a kind of a point of crystallization for, for a new opposition. Uh, because for this election, Navalny built a network, a network in Russian regions, so-called uh, headquarters of, of Navalny uh, was in every city, in every town, and uh, that was a kind of a magnet for, for opposition. And also appeared in 2017, 2018, uh, a few new independent media, like Media Zona, uh, which is a prominent independent Russian media about prisons, about 
judges about uh, juridical system and stuff like that appear at the uh, Libertarian Party and uh, they were also very active in uh, oppositional okay, activities. So it was like, you know, a second brief, <laughs> a new brief, a uh, new appearance of the opposition. You remember those days, uh, they were kind of optimistical mood. So we can beat Putin, we can think up something. No, okay, Putin beat us. <laughs> I should, I should, uh, yeah. Uh, so what was that like? So like elections in 2018, where Navalny was not allowed, were completely like, you know, like a game. It was Putin and he he did not allow any real opponent to be presented. So he, he just allowed some, you know, funny, odd people. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that's that's not important. Uh, that was not uh, an election. It, it was just like Putin just named himself again a president. And also, uh, I'd like uh, to add that um, a lot of support was uh, for for pro Putin regime was uh, got from all people who work on the government, like teachers, uh, teacher teachers, policemen, and so on, because he start to, uh, uh, he increased the salaries for them. Uh, and uh, it's bring uh, to him a popularity, but in the same time, it bring him uh, 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 the way to control them. Because for example, if you're a teacher and you participate in uh, anti-government movement, you can be fired or you can have some problem on the work. Like but- uh, we, told, we told you about election falsifications. And uh, who who does these falsifications? They are done by teachers for most of the time. Yes. And why they falsificate the election results? Because uh, oh, they are forced to do that because they are completely зависимы. It depends. Ah, yes. конечно, спасибо. They completely are dependent of, of governmental support, governmental money and stuff like that. So that's, you know, a kind of a paradox that people who are teaching children, <laughs> they are criminals uh, in a sense. Uh, they falsify uh, the elections. Oh, that's, that's the thing I like the most. <laughs> So. Yes. Yeah, so, so if to summarize everything, so it was very long way to, to this current point. And it uh, wasn't like happened that we have uh, uh, democratics. At uh, once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in month, we all country decide to, uh, to uh, fight with Ukraine. Something. It was like a poison of Navalny was a final shot, like, you know, in the head. Uh, from from this moment, it was obvious that we live in authoritarian regime. From Yeltsin's endorsement of Putin in 99 and Putin's election in 2000 to the annexation of Crimea and the Donbass in 2014 to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022, the shift towards authoritarianism with red flags all along the way occurred practically in slow motion. 
The initial support for the Russian invasion of Crimea, the Donbas, and all of Ukraine has been bolstered by Russian propaganda. Many Russians believe these are spontaneous movements that arose out of Ukrainians' desire to reintegrate with Russia. Russia has pushed this independent actor narrative while denying that the Russian military plays any active role. But this is false. You know, like Strelkov himself in the, in the many interviews said that uh, that was him. Yeah, like, <laughs> because he's a kind of a narcissist as far as I get that. And he, he wanted, and he wants to tell everybody, like, <laughs> uh, and the Ukrainians, uh, they, they give and uh, they gave a lot of proofs about the presence of Russian regular troops in, in 2014. So it's like, approved story. Uh, it, it, it's not uh, rumors. It's it's approved story by many participants and by uh, Ukrainian side. And even, you know, like even if you listen to some Russian propaganda journalists uh, from state uh, television, sometimes they, uh, they, they tell that that was us uh, in, in Donbass and Lugansk. Uh, sometimes. Uh, but uh, you are right that uh, in Europe and in the USA and in, in the outer <laughs> universe, uh, they are pushing another agenda like, oh, that was a spontaneous popular movement and we've got nothing to do with that. Yeah. We in the United States are also doing a bad job understanding the war in Ukraine. We are getting a lot of our talking points, both from the far right and the far left, from Russian propaganda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a kind of, a, you know, like it was named, it was called in Soviet times, uh, useful idiots, useful idiots, uh, different politicians in the West who for some reasons are aligned with, you know, Soviet policy, but, but uh, these politicians think that they push their own agenda. Uh, so it's a kind of, a, because yes, of course, and uh, even this, you know, like, famous Cheveka um, Wagner. I don't know how to call Cheveka in English. It's um, uh, um, like uh, not state-owned uh, troops, but like uh, Anna, как сказать, что это частные войска, частная армия. Ah, uh, like a private army. Yeah, yeah, like uh, private army, famous uh, Chavaka Wagner, we call it in Russia. Chavaka, частная военная компания, private-owned military company. Yeah, uh, so Wagner himself, uh, Wagner is a second name. Uh, he is a far right and he is Nazi. Wagner is not a real name. It's, uh, uh, it's, Pseudonym, it's pseudonym, name, and uh, he, he, he literally is a Nazi. <laughs> it's not, you know, like a, a metaphor. Uh, so, yes, uh, and uh, Rogozin, uh, you know Rogozin, the head of uh, Rus uh, Russian uh, cosmic, cosmic aviation, I, I, like, yeah, like uh, Rogozin is a far-right man from right-wing party, so he's also like a kind of a fascist guy. So yeah, we've got a lot of <laughs> this this kind of people, 
and yes, uh, in Donbass, most part of them are really far, tra- far right, white supremacists, and literally, literally like that. Yeah, but also we've got, uh, you know, this far, far left groups, and nowadays uh, some of them, they support uh, the war against Ukraine, yes, from this far left perspective. So that's, you know, like, and in, in the West, uh, Russian propaganda pushing all, all these two agendas, far right and far left. Funny to see that, but yeah, that's how it works. And uh, there are fundings, uh, yeah, and they sent a lot of money to this far right or far left parties, yeah. And we wondered, because of our American centrism, if Donald Trump's praise of Putin had much of an impact in Russia. Well, uh, mostly he was relevant. You know, like when, when Trump was elected, I, uh, that was a kind of, a, uh, okay, popular approval. Like, yeah, yeah, Trump is a normal man, like masculine man. Um, finally, eventually, eventually. Because in Russia, people hated uh, a lot of this, you know, like propaganda-minded conservative right-wing pro-Putin people. They hated Barack Obama. Uh, And even even, uh, because of some racist prejudices, I should say, uh, that mostly they just (laughs) don't like him. And Trump was like uh, their man, like Muzik. But... But then uh, they just lost uh, every interest in him, and it was like. I I also saw a lot of uh, jokes about Trump that he's stupid, that he's a funny guy, and that he's uh, like a, a businessman who just tried to try everything yeah. in his life. Like, oh, I want to be a millionaire, bomb. Not like he he already b- was burned like a billionaire, but uh, like oh I would like to be a president. Bam! Like he he was mm, in some circles he was considered like a crazy funny man, like 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 a um, clown. But um, but other uh, and also another point of view was like he's a smart man because just the clown are able to say like that. That probably he's he he's a smart man, but very like with a special way of representation. So uh, also I heard this opinion. But mostly people were not interested yeah. in not him. Sure. Quite quite yeah yeah yeah. We understand the current global animosity towards all things Russia. We wonder again, in a nation of 140 million, why can't they overthrow their government? Why can't they dethrone Putin? And we hope this episode gave you some answers on that, because nothing is ever as straightforward as we'd like, even when you're looking at the horrible atrocities committed by the Russian army against Ukrainians. When we talk about dystopian societies, most commonly George Orwell's 1984, we decry the oppressive government of Oceania that controls everyone's lives. We're rabid in our hatred of government control. We call upon the image of 1984 to preview what could happen to us if we give up our freedoms, but little attention is given to the protagonist of 1984, Winston Smith, who in his rebellion is beaten further into submission, re-educated. We can see from one side of the curtain that we have a lot of freedom to lose, 
but it is more difficult to understand that on the other side of that curtain, there is only state-approved freedom. The freedom to see what the state wants us to see, to behave as the state wants. None of this, of course, excuses Russia from the atrocities in Crimea, in the Donbass, and in Ukraine as a whole. Thanks to activists and historians like Sophia, we're able to glimpse behind the curtain and understand the political and contextual background that shapes the present. That work makes it possible to change the regime of control, the regime of blood and soil. It's those oppositional efforts that make all the difference, even when all you see is blind loyalty. We again want to thank Sofia Shirogorova for her time, and it was a lot of time, as well as our interpreter and fixer, Anna, for providing translations and adding her own commentary. Lastly, this is yet another reminder to check out helpingtoleave.org. That is a network of over 300 Russian activists who work 24-7 to get Ukrainians financial aid, food, clothing, shelter, and even coordinate evacuation efforts and activities for them. Helpingtoleave.org.